0: Folks, we are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. It's called The Nature Gap, The Lack of Diversity in Outdoor Recreation. Studies show that people of color are less likely to participate in activities like hiking, camping, or surfing. A 2018 survey of national parks showed that less than 2% of visitors are black, despite being 12.4% of the American population. This lack of diversity largely stems from layers of historic discrimination that make it harder for people of color to access natural spaces. Plus, the very land we call America is scarred with the history of colonization and overuse of resources. Can we bring diversity and sustainable practices to our great outdoors? Baratunde Thurston, writer, activist and podcaster, is lacing up his boots and strapping on his snorkel gear to visit some extraordinary landscapes on the new PBS show America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston, which premiered on July 5th. I'm someone who was lucky to be raised camping, exploring state parks, fishing, and crabbing. Later in life, I joined Outdoor Afro to find other Black folks interested in the outdoors. So we were delighted that our guest host, author and veteran broadcast journalist Celeste Headley, was able to interview Veritunde Thurston. Enjoy. Before we launch into details about the show, I read in one
1: interview where you said you think it should be America, comma, outdoors. <laughs> I did Why? say that.
2: I was feeling pretty clever uh, at the moment. It is it's just clever. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that um even I underestimated the degree to which this show is focused on people and not necessarily close-up slow motion of animals or sweeping drone shots of amazing topography. It's got a little bit of both of those, but it's really about Americans and all of us from the eldest indigenous Americans to the newest refugee immigrants and everyone in between. And what we have in common in this series is a strong connection to the outdoors. Um, I I also said that because I've had many occasions to talk about the country, often in like a remote studio somewhere. And uh, it was cool to get outdoors and talk with people uh, of various persuasions in America. Uh, also of various persuasions, like the diversity of the landscape is echoed in the people and vice versa. Uh, so America, outdoors. There's like a pause there that um, that I think is the shortest way to capture the show. And I've ruined that brevity with this long explanation. Now,
1: I think it's worthwhile, though, to think about it in those terms. And I wonder, you know... There are so many nature shows. I mean, I remember with my grandparents sitting and watching um, Mutual of Omaha Mm. (laughs) when I was a really little kid. There are so many shows that are about being out in nature. What kind of show were you trying to make? I mean, what was missing in this genre?
2: I was missing. (laughs) You know, selfishly, uh, there's not a lot of nature shows featuring black folk. Uh, There's not a lot of nature shows featuring middle-aged black dudes. Um, and, and so I wanted to see myself and, and thankfully I found, you know, PBS and the production company part two, uh, they were excited about me doing this. I grew up as a very outdoorsy naturalist kid. I was a boy scout. I hiked around the DC area, biked all over the the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And I wanted to see the country through all kinds of sizes and shapes and, and types of people uh, who can be outdoorsy without necessarily, you know, doing extreme sports or having sponsorships or having a lot of money to invest in all the gear and the travel and the special equipment that occurs to you, uh, certainly that occurred to me when I would hear the term outdoorsy. So there was a level of accessibility that I was excited to have this show bring. And it's so many dimensions, like urban folk. You know, we did a whole episode around LA. And so for some people, outdoors is the backyard. For some people, outdoors is the nearest local park or beach or hillside. Um, For other folks, it is a thousand acre ranch or the Chesapeake Bay or the Outer Banks of North Carolina. But all of that counts. I think I just, I wanted the show to communicate that all of this, counts as a connection to nature. All of this is outdoors. And we should strive to reforge that connection because a lot of us have lost it. A lot of us have been in an economy which encourages us to lose it. Uh, and So there's another way to be with nature.
1: So, you know, there's this stereotype that people of color don't go camping or hiking. But like the stereotype that Black people don't know how to swim, like there's a reason behind it. Many Mm -hmm. Black... People don't know how to swim because swimming pools are segregated and they weren't allowed. Um, And that's the same is true of parks and the outdoors. I mean, it was 1964 when the national parks of the United States desegregated. That's so recent.
2: It's very recent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how do you make this pitch Mm -hmm. to communities of color, not just black communities, but also in um, communities... Like I was talking to a, f- a friend of mine who was uh, an immigrant from India and said that the outdoors, because of British colonization, being outdoors is associated with being savage or being uncivilized. Yeah. How do you make this pitch?
2: So um, nature has been conscripted into some of our greatest crimes against humanity. The history of black folk in America with respect to nature and outdoors complicated. It's the scene of the crime. It's where we were forced to labor. It's where we were tortured. It's where we were lynched. It's, it's where we're forced to run and stripped from our families, our language, our religions, all that. You know, the context is like fields and mountains and riverbanks and oceans. Uh, the ocean, you know, was the last gasp of freedom for many of us. And as you pointed out, you know, even as we pay taxes and we're trying to be full members of this society that wasn't designed for us, we weren't allowed to access the resources we were subsidizing, national parks, public parks, pools, etc. The trees that were involved in lynching didn't sign up for that. We are human beings. We emerge from the earth. We climbed out the ocean. You know, that's our true home. And we all deserve a return to that more balanced state of being with nature around us. And and I think a lot of the natural world could use that healing too, you know, because of the things it was pulled into that it didn't sign up for. So it's not as simple as you've already pointed out that you know, black people don't like to swim. It was like illegal to swim. It was illegal to read as well. It was illegal to maintain your familial ties. So questions about the black family, questions about education levels, questions about housing and outdoor access are silly if they don't take into account the context and the full history. The beauty, Celeste, is that the history doesn't have to be the end of the story. Otherwise, many of us wouldn't be here. You know, if we just stopped with the trauma, then that would be it. And so in the series, I come across all kinds of people who are finding mental health benefits, financial benefits, community benefits from reconnecting to nature. Whether it's just walking, growing food in the backyard, bird watching, surfing, so many folks. A big old group of black surfers in L.A., BIPOC surfers in L.A. It was like Wakanda on the waves, I call them, because they a group called Color the Water. Uh, this paralyzed man in West Virginia, who's a water rafter, Eric Thompson, really opened my eyes and like reminded me these outdoors need to be for everyone and accessible to everyone. And they can be. It's not a burden. It's a great opportunity for us all. So if you are a person of color and you've got some complicated feelings about hanging out outside, I feel you. I understand. And we cannot allow the abuse of that relationship to define our future relationship. We are a part of this world, and this world is a part of us.
1: You know, one of the things that comes up in the show is all the different benefits of being outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. Even in, as you say, an urban park, the benefit of looking at a tree, Mm. not just emotional benefits, but physiological benefits, social benefits. And yet the access to that has often been so limited. And when there has been research done of communities of color, they are so much less likely to have a tree anywhere near their living space than many other communities. What kind of advice do you have for someone who doesn't live near a park?
2: I think very big picture, you're not alone. Find others, get together, organize, increase and build your power, and get that park, right? Bring it closer to you. In the shorter to middle term, uh, work to find ways to access the closest thing to a park that's possible. That might mean trading off rides with someone, that might be swapping babysitters, it might be taking a bus or a train or both, you know, to get somewhere. But it's almost like hanging out in nature can be like going to the doctor without some of the complications of like going to a doctor's office. I don't want to put this all on the individual person who doesn't have access You're just like, well, what you got to do is buy a car and buy a bike and get out there, you'll make it happen. Maybe, you know, maybe that's possible, but with other people you can. And there are a lot of groups. There are a lot of groups that help with that accessibility. I mean, I grew up in a very urban part of Washington, D.C., but we were also a couple of blocks from a park. So I had kind of the best and and worst of both. And it sounds like your mom took you around a lot. Yeah, I also had a a very unique, aggressive mother (laughs) who was just like, go outside, (laughs) just go. You know, she wasn't just like, telling me to do what she said, she would join and she would organize outings with my friends. So maybe you're not that mom, you're not that dad, but you might know someone who is, you know, my mom was that mom for the block, right? For me and all my little friends, there was only one Arnita and my older sister, Belinda, she helped a lot too. We would go on bike trips together when I was much younger. And as she and I both got older, I went on whitewater rafting trip with her, mountain biking, fishing, like it starts young, you know, in the culture of not engaging in nature can be just as passed on as the culture of engaging. So find a camp, find a nonprofit group. There are a lot of programs in multiple areas across this country that are designed to get young people and grown folks out into nature. I'm thinking of a Girl Trek right now, which has chapters all over the country. Basically this walking group for black women, that's America Outdoors in a group setting, you know, with community support. And now we got social media. So there's like outdoor Afro, whatever you are, there's a group for you trying to get you outside. <laughs> you know, just use your, your online search skills and, and find your people, you know, doing what you might end up loving.
0: That's guest host Celeste Headley talking with activist, author and podcaster Baratunde from the PBS show America Outdoors with Baratunde Thurston. Coming up next, more of Baratunde Thurston, host of the PBS series, America Outdoors, plus sipping the political tea with the Washington Post, Karen Atiyah, and Olaiame Aluren of The Hills Rising on the latest from the January 6th committee and more. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. If you're just tuning in, we're continuing a conversation between our guest host, veteran broadcaster and author Celeste Headley, and Baratunde Thurston about his new six-part PBS series, America Outdoors. Nature may not discriminate, but for many Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in the United States, there can be big barriers to accessing green space. Baratunde explores the communities of color building spaces in nature and some of the lessons from Indigenous communities. Here's more from that discussion. So I think it's um,
1: enlightening that you're recommending group activities to find your people. And I say that because I think that often... Fear is what keeps people of color out yeah. of the outdoors because we see headlines even today that tell us that people of color aren't completely safe
2: yeah. in
1: the outdoors. Going back as far as 1919, we see examples of Eugene Williams killed while rafting on Lake Michigan, but even Christian Cooper, who was just bird watching mm-hmm. in Central Park. You know, we do see these examples of the fact that A person of color, either alone or in a small group, may not be safe. How do we get past that and make the outdoors safe for everybody?
2: So, brutal, honest moments, Celeste. People of color are not completely safe outdoors. Nor are we completely safe indoors. We can be asleep in our homes. And cops can bust down the door and just start blazing. And we don't wake up. So, there is no absolute safety and security. There is more, and there is less, and there are trade-offs, and there is community, and there's safety in different ways. I spoke with Mossy Smith about this. He was in our Death Valley episode. He is an a ultramarathoner, Black man from Georgia, who runs 135-mile marathons from the lowest point in North America to one of the highest, Badwater Basin up to Mount Whitney, that's crazy. And I asked him about Ahmad Arbery, you know, who was shot and killed in Georgia, his home state, While jogging. jogging through a neighborhood. Somebody didn't think he belonged there. He said, I, "I can't let you know the outside world define my joy." You know, I, I spoke with Dudley Edmondson, who is a blackbird watcher, bird listener, like Christian Cooper, and he told the story of two two buddies of his who were out fishing. And somebody starts shooting at them because they don't think they belong there. Just for fishing. And that can happen at a 4th of July parade too. You know, in the celebration of this country, you can be ended. So I wouldn't set that as the bar. Instead, I would say, yes, other people can help lower that feeling of loneliness and and isolation. And when you're the only one doing a certain thing, it's it's heightened inner anxiety. It can be. I found that you know, especially during the past couple of years as I go on my hikes, even around here in LA, I'm in this increasingly gentrifying area. And I'm like, do all these people know I'm their neighbor? <laughs> you know? oh, I'm out yeah. here like Ned Flanders, you know, very smiley. Smiley Baratunde. Hello, neighbor. How you doing today? Just on a hike through my neighborhood. Isn't it great to live here? It's so great oh, to be God, your neighbor. It
1: hurts my heart, Day.
2: <laughs> but, you know, my other choice is to succumb to the fear. And stay away from anyone who looks different from me and assume the worst from anyone I don't know and strap up constantly, which poses its own danger. So I refuse to live in a constant state of elevated fear. And Dudley talked about, you know, in the man-made world, we have to perform a certain way to get along we have to be many of us uh be non-threatening, extra Ed diplomatic, Flanders. smiley, happy, uh a good one, you know, all perform white comfort moves, right? <laughs> uh so for me that's a lot of hellos and smiles. And my voice is probably like a half octave higher than it it would be. And women have their version of that just being around men, you know, <laughs> got to can't make a man feel threatened, otherwise that's he right. becomes a threat, right? So Many people have familiarity with these uh, comfort Olympics that we have to contort ourselves through. Birds don't care. Fish don't care. Trees don't care. Horses don't care. And if we can get through the threshold of some of the human interference, we can connect with a whole nother form of life and energy that actually sees us for the beautiful creature and living cohabitant of this planet that we are. And if we can start to feel familiar in that environment, all kinds of adrenaline drops. You know, I'm not afraid of the bugs anymore. I know what kind of bug that is. I know what kind of bird. That I know what that's, what sound it is. That rustling doesn't scare me anymore. And we can feel at home like we belong, which for many of us is a very hard feeling to achieve in this country. But the literal country, the plants, the waterways, the hillsides, they love all people who are, are willing to be respectful and loving of them. And so... I just think the benefits of breaking through that fear and getting to this more relational place with nature far outweigh the fear and the odds that that piece is going to be ruined by some idiot. Because any moment can be ruined by some idiot. But this moment, this is a special one.
1: You know, you also spent time... Um, with indigenous people th- yeah. from three different nations, three different areas. Shoshone
2: in Death Valley, uh, Shoshone, Bannock, in and Idaho, and Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, in, in central and northern Minnesota, mostly central at that point. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, talk about a culture for whom the outdoors and land has been both a source of connection and trauma. Yeah. That's definitely true of our Native American brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from them?
2: I learned from them things we have tried to forget at great cost to us we've tried to forget that we are a part of nature and not apart from nature that we are uh, one of many forms of life deserving of life on this planet not the one form of life singled out to dominate all the other ones (laughs) with the shoshone bannock they call themselves the salmon people we were up in idaho We go up to meet uh, the Matsaw family who have organized to bring us on this annual ritual of a salmon hunt with members of their nation. And they had to call it off because there weren't that many salmon to hunt. And the salmon that they had pulled in were flabby, soft. The water was too warm. They were kind of getting cooked, you know, in their own home, which is our fate, too. We are getting cooked in our own homes. Look at the Southwest on fire on a constant basis. The metaphor is not even a metaphor. Literally the same thing's happening to all of us, except we're the cause, not the fish. They used a couple of phrases which stood out to me. Brother salmon. They rarely just said the salmon. Like they created this family relationship to this fish that they had intended to kill and eat, you know, but at a certain sustainable threshold and limit. They said, you know, Brother Salmon has taken care of us for thousands of years. It's time for us to help out the salmon and do what we can and not take too many and try to do what we can to save their home. Uh, They make the the hunting rods, uh, these spears out of big trees, father tree. So even the language reflected a relationship and not just a transaction. That was a deep lesson, super simple one, super simple, but very deep. Uh, There was an area we call Death Valley. The people of that region refer to themselves and the region as Timbisha. The land and the people have the same name. Again, very simple, profound. There's no separation. There's no separation between us and the natural world. Our economy, our version of, of progress and civilization require that separation, require us to see the earth as just a resource to be mined, extracted from, monetized, sold. And the colonial European mindset said, proper use of the land is GDP and crop yields and all these quantifiable, superficial financial activities, which it also turns out was contributing to a steady mass suicide for our species. So, you know, the the, the idea that you are the land you're from, it's right there in the name, Timbisha. I love that. And Pauline Estevez, this elder... She's 97 years old when I talked to her, so she's probably 98 now. She uh, has been at this activism thing for a long time. This ambition were only recently in their history recognized by the U.S. federal government. The government tried to clear them out, made way for the national monument, which became the national park that so many of us love to visit, not knowing the cost. You know, the cost was to displace these people. And we tricked them. You know, I say we because it's done in my government's name, too. I didn't do it. I'm complicit in the whole system. I benefit from some of this weird stuff, too. So we tricked them into moving into these adobe homes that Civilian Engineer Corps built. We told them, if you ever leave these homes, you'll forfeit them. And then when they do their summer migration up to the mountains, because it's hot, uh, we hose them down with fire hoses. I'm talking to this elder indigenous woman about the U.S. federal government attacking her people and their way of life with fire hoses. This is an all-too-familiar tale. But she's like, this is not Death Valley. You know, even the name is stupid. Really, at the end of the day, what happened was a bunch of white dudes was trying to cross. They'd prepared poorly. They had to be rescued, and they were like, farewell, Death Valley, and the name stuck.
1: Even though none of them died, it's kind of like the first Thanksgiving again. White people, ill prepared. Like yeah. history
0: seems to be all about <laughs> ill prepared white people.
2: There, that's a, that's a big that's a big chunk of it.
0: This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. You're listening to Our Conversation, guest hosted by ACE broadcaster Celeste Headley with Baratunde Thurston. Baratunde's new PBS series, America Outdoors, visits spectacular regions and explores how the many communities who call America home access and relate to the land. Here's more.
2: I could write a whole book about what I learned just from the three groups I spent time with. The uh, Anishinaabe I didn't spend too much time on here, but got to join their wild rice harvest, their manumen harvest. You know, Minnesota prides itself on its wild rice. They're like, that stuff you buy in the store, that's not wild. We call that tame rice. This is wild rice. And we go out there in the canoe and it's, it's in the bog and it's very damp and wetlands and somebody's using the pole to drive the canoe and there's someone else in the boat who's the knocker using essentially drumsticks to kind of bend these reeds of rice over the bow of the boat, tap them lightly so that you shake a few pieces of rice off, but not too many. And then you're also reseeding the rice bed because some of it spills off the side of the boat. Sustainable, enjoyable, there's literally a rhythm to it. They let me do it. I felt like I was part of the band. You know, <laughs> it was to have this like rhythmic, musical relationship with gathering food, when when many of us, we get rice from the store.
1: I gotta tell you, we're talking about a lot of serious issues as we discuss the show, but one of the things I, I loved was it was just full of joy. Yeah. Like, we so rarely get to see shows that are focused on joy, but we especially rarely get to see people of color just being joyful.
2: Mm-hmm. There's a group in uh, Boise, Idaho. Boise is one of the larger refugee resettlement regions of the country. So they got a lot of folks there coming from war, coming from all kinds of persecution and, and torture and pain. And I got to spend a day with these teenagers who are in this outdoor outreach program designed to help them acclimate to the country by hanging out outside. And I was one of the kids who went through the program. He's now like a guide in the program Tanang. I am 98% sure he's from the Myanmar region. And the adults were telling me like the stuff he grew up witnessing would would chill you. I didn't I wouldn't ask him and he didn't volunteer, but I believe them when they tell me that. And I asked him, you know, how this program helped him feel like he was a part of America. And he was like, "Yo, when I got here, I didn't know anybody, I didn't speak the language. I just kept to myself. I ate lunch by myself at school." I went straight home after, I had no friends. And then I got a part of this program and I met all these other kids and I started like coming out of my shell. And the thing that made me the happiest is just being in an inner tube floating down the river. And I can just let go of all my stresses and all my worries from the day and just float and kind of like let the river hold it. Oh man, I'm like almost about to cry this kid is like 14 years old. And you know, the way he's talking, like, he has seen things none of us ever want to see. And he's finding a new home through communing with the water, you know, with the fresh air, with these birds, etc. And then he made friends. And now he's got a leadership position. And now everybody wants to hang out with him. And he's like, coming out at school and being more social and has friends and isn't just locking himself in his room, you know, that's available to, to all of us. And, uh, I, 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 love him for sharing that with me. I love that. I got to see Boise in that light. You know, this, this series also recast the country. I saw a different Appalachia than the one I'm used to hearing about, you know, which is like opioids and Joe mansion and coal. There's so much more. Hanging out with regenerative farmers and whitewater rafters and uh hikers of the Appalachian Trail and, and Idaho as well. You know, there's libertarian, gun-loving folk who hate government, trying to take over government. Yes, that is that is in the land there too. There's also progressive. I was walking down the street in Boise and I heard this music thumping. And I was like, oh, what's going on? It's like a nightclub. The sun was still up. And it's maybe five, five, six PM at the latest. I go up to this little mini mall. Upstairs, it's drag night at the gay club, <laughs> and there's flags all over downtown Boise talking about we'll be carbon neutral by 2040 or 2050. And then you also see like Air Force, you know, cadets. There's a major Air Force base nearby, and you got your big Trump flags, and everybody's got an F-150 because everybody's like a contractor in this country, I guess. It's all of it. It's just all of it. It like recomplicates the picture. I think. There's a lot of passion that I have for the series, which is really passion that I have for the country. And at, at this time when you know big parts of me do not feel welcome in this country, do not feel at home here, I got to find other ways to feel at home. And I got to, to your point, uh, experience joy with all kinds of folk who are also experiencing joy And it's not because they make a lot of money. It's not because they cashed out a Bitcoin at the high price. It's because they have found this relationship with nature, which at some level is available to us all.
1: Well, I I loved it. And the surfing episode had me wondering (laughs) what the black, I mean, if there was the black version of the Beach Boys, Mm. (laughs) because we associate surfing with, you know, blonde haired white dudes right and not so,
2: hawaiians
1: you know? which is the most ridiculous things so or even samoans
2: this happens a lot this is like whitewashing of culture if i say yoga we probably have an image of like a slender white woman and some lululemon even though yoga is from like poor brown people so yeah we can recast uh the narrative you know reclaim some pieces uh, of ourselves in, in these rocks, in these hills, and in these animals uh, that are less judgy you know, than our fellow humans can be. So it's, it's nice to have a break from the judgment.
1: Baratunde, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Celeste. And if I might, you know, I have a lot of friends who, quote unquote, don't watch TV. So if you don't have a TV, here's what we got for you. The PBS video app, the show is available there. We have the first two episodes on PBS's YouTube channel. It's on the PBS website, pbs.org slash America Outdoors. So it's exciting. I'm very proud to be making this show about America with the American people. So thanks.
0: That's guest host Celeste Headley interviewing Baratunde Thurston, host of America Outdoors, the new PBS series. Thurston is also the author of the New York Times bestseller How to Be Black and the creator and host of How to Citizen with Baratunde, which Apple named one of its favorite podcasts of 2020. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable, Sip in the Political Tea, gets into election headlines with political commentator Olaiimi Alurin and Our Body Politic contributor and Washington Post columnist Karen Atia. You're listening to Our Body Politic. And now on to our weekly roundtable, sipping the political tea. Joining me this week is our Body Politic contributor and opinions columnist at the Washington Post, Karen Atia. Hey, Karen. Hey, Farai. Life has been lifing, and we're going to talk about it. And also, making her debut on Our Body Politic, we've got Olayami Olurin, also known as Ole for short, a public defender for Legal Aid Society of New York and a political commentator on The Hills Rising. Hi, Ole. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you. So, we're going to cover a lot of territory, including how President Biden is faring with the public and a Rhode Island senator twerking on TikTok. But let's start with the House committee investigating the insurrection and those who plotted to block the peaceful transfer of presidential power. The January 6th committee held another public hearing this week, the 7th so far, this time focusing on how the Trump campaign and White House advisors fomented the insurrection.
2: If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore.
0: Now, that was a clip of President Trump speaking at the Stop the Steel rally. And this is Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, reading a tweet that President Trump sent after meeting with dueling advisers in advance of the rally. Shortly after the last participants left the unhinged meeting, Trump sent out the tweet with his explosive invitation Trump repeated his big lie and claimed it was, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election before calling for a big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, we'll be wild. These hearings are chaired by Representative Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, and vice chaired by Representative Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming. Those two and their colleagues are piling up more and more examples of Donald Trump's role in, you know, stirring up the insurrection and pregaming it. So, Ole, is this committee doing a good job of presenting evidence to the public that Donald Trump may have committed crimes?
3: Yes, but I think everybody who is prepared to accept the reality of what the Republicans and Donald Trump have been doing knows that that happened. We saw it happen in real time, right? And the other half of the country want to pretend like that's not the case because that's what they've been doing the whole time, pretending like they don't understand who won the election, pretending like they don't understand that this was an insurrection, pretending that they don't understand the magnitude of these... Quite honestly, tyrannical type behaviors that Donald Trump has been engaged in. It's extreme. Just the fact alone that he lost an election and every president before him is engaged in the peaceful transfer of power and he refused to concede the election. We had a president embolden a, a group of people to engage in what is effectively a coup. That's what they wanted to do. And you see them keep trying to mitigate the rhetoric, right? Yeah. It's changed from insurrectionists to January 6th. I think it's important that they stick on it. But I think that the people who are prepared to ignore it and pretend like they don't get it. And I say pretend because there's a major, major consistency in deliberate obtuseness that you see from the Republican Party where they gas like the whole country. Do you think
0: that there will be um, an impact that comes out of this like charges against the president? You know, it sounds like you, you're like, well, duh, yeah, this
3: happened. But what? comes next, do you think? If I had to put my personal money on it, I would say no, that they're not going to charge Donald Trump just because... The Democrats have shown me repeatedly, 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 repeatedly that they're just not prepared to go to the lengths that they're supposed to. I think if the the tides had been turned, if the roles had been reversed and it had been Biden who did this or whatever and Trump who won, we'd have been seeing charges. We'd have have seen the the most intense of retaliations. But I don't think we're going to see it from the Democrats because I think Donald Trump has been engaged in a series, a series, a series of criminal activity the entire time. We've known him now and he never gets checked, so I wouldn't put my money on it.
0: There was another thing that came out this week that really has to do with the question of attempted witness tampering. Here's the vice chair, Cheney. President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call. So... What do you think? I mean, now we've got witness tampering possibly layered on top of everything else. What do you think, Karen?
4: The revelation of potential witness tampering throughout this entire process only adds fuel to a potential or what should be a DOJ case against Donald Trump. But in terms of laying out before the public criminal activity of our former president, witness tampering is a crime. So... Even if people want to pretend there was doubt about what happened on January 6th and the actions leading up to that, seeing that the president is attempting to even manipulate the outcomes of this uh, investigation, again, just adds to the case file of a former president who is engaging blatantly in criminal activity and trying to point blank undermine democracy by interfering with this process.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's up to the Department of Justice how to pursue both the witness tampering and any other criminal charges. And some legal observers really are critical of the head of the DOJ, Merrick Garland. I wanted to catch up on some of the developments in the arc of the testimony. So I want to play one more thing on this point. This is Stephen Ayers, who pled guilty last month to disorderly and disruptive conduct in a restricted building. That was during the insurrection, of course. And here he's questioned by Representative Stephanie Murphy, Democrat of Florida.
4: Did you think that the president would be marching with you?
2: Um, yeah, I think everybody thought he was going to be coming down, um, you know, he said in his speech, you know, it's kind of like he's going to be there with us. So, I mean, I think I, I believed it.
0: And so this person now says that he regrets believing President Trump. We're starting to see... A bit more of a movement in some polls on Republicans who don't want to see um, President Trump run again, you know, which he's eligible to do because the impeachments were, you know, effectively blocked from the full loop of completion by the Republican Party, particularly Mitch McConnell, who was quoted in a variety of background documents as basically saying, let the Democrats take the hit for this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, let's stay out of the way of this bus. But there does seem to be a bit of a softening of Republican support for President Trump as a future candidate, if he can even run. Is testimony like this an example of some of the people who might be backing away? Does that even matter? Ole.
3: I don't think they're softening because they recognize that this is an unhinged bigot that they've put into the office and headed their party. I think they're softening because he's become a liability and they see a replacement in Ron DeSantis. It's a strategic move, right? And I think they recognize that and his continued behavior has become a liability to the party. And I think that they see an opportunity to move him out and replace him with a DeSantis that's gonna give us a lot of the same rhetoric, uh, embolden the same people. I don't think it's because they see now like, oh, we've been led astray by this Donald Trump. It's just, uh, this might not be this might not be going the way we want. And I think I see a strategical option to, to get a DeSantis. That's what I think is going on.
0: You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I am Farai Chidea, and this week we're discussing with great vigor the latest from the January 6th committee, plus the backlash that a Rhode Island state senator received for twerking on TikTok as she campaigned for re-election. Here with us is Olayemi Olurin, Olay for short, an attorney and political commentator, and Karen Atia, Our Body Politic contributor and opinions columnist at The Washington Post. There was one poll just recently from the Harvard University Center for American Political Studies, and it did some one-to-one matches. Trump would beat both Biden and Harris, but Harris would win against Florida Governor DeSantis. I don't know if there's any point to something like that at this point. Yeah, uh, people can't see you, but Ole, you're shaking your head. Why don't you go first and then Karen chime in?
3: Kamala not beating nobody. <laughs> I'm so sorry to say it. It's not personal. It's not even personal. And regardless of how I feel about it, Kamala's not beating nobody. Kamala can beat nobody, and Kamala, Kamala can get the nod on her own. Kamala can get her own community support. That's just not going to happen. And and listen, it's a great it's a great ceiling, right? If your ceiling is Vice President of the United States, your ceiling's higher than anywhere I've been. So it's not slander, Kamala. But I think we see I think we've seen the top of the road for Kamala. Kamala not beating nobody's defenses. It's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah, one, one of my producers just slacked, the tea is being served. So Karen, how do you react to this this offer of tea from Ole?
4: Ole, I, I would like to put you under witness protection, actually, because the k going to come for you, like, hard. They wow. are, <laughs> the worst thing I ever said about her, they better look up <laughs> They are wild. Um, but, you know, uh, what I would say about this conversation, I mean, it's just another example of how in this country it just really pays to be a white. Man, even if you're doing criming, the idea that like we feel like we can't even honestly talk about any consequences for a leader who basically incited a rebellion, a coup, treason to this country is still a crime. We don't use the T word. We're battling about insurrection January 6th. This is treason. To the country. So the fact that the only consequence that the Republicans might be considering is that he doesn't get to run for commander-in-chief again is just wild to me. Honestly, it would be incredibly detrimental to the democracy of this country and to our international standing if there are absolutely no consequences for what happened on January 6th for Donald Trump. I really worry if... The DOJ does not act after what we've seen over the past uh, few weeks in the past year. It just sets up a playbook for this to happen again and, frankly, for there to be more bloodshed. So I hope that after this, I pray for this country that after this, that there are some form of consequences and more so than just, oh, Trump doesn't get to run again. Beyond the
3: fact that they call this the big lie as opposed to calling it treason, right? We'd be calling it treason in a normal place. It's obviously that. It's textbook that. But instead, even the people that are uh, that say it's wrong are calling it the big lie. They're calling January 6th. They're calling it all these mitigating languages. But then the last audio we just heard from the person who was, uh, they got disorderly con. Disorderly conduct is a violation. It's not even a crime. Like As a defense attorney, I find it absurd. Usually, BIPOC people, Black people are responsible for any kind of crime that happens in the commission of a crime, right? So if you're committing a felony and something else happens, someone dies during the course of that, they will hold you legally responsible for that. You mean to tell me a group of people, you want to call them insurrectionists, treasonists, whatever, they they went to the Capitol with the intention of overthrowing the government and they literally caused the death of an officer? Nothing. No felony murder, no felony charge, no nothing. A disorderly conduct. Disorderly conduct is what you would get, what I would plead you out to in New York City for uh, urinating at a park or being at the park after hours or something like that. But that is what we're looking at. Those are the consequences of people that literally attempted to overthrow our democracy and quite literally are invalidating our democracy to not just our own nation, but everybody else that can see this right around the world.
0: And so, Karen, I want to Talk about a couple things that may be on your mind. Um, Let's start with President Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. Mr. Biden promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah on the international stage, and now he's going to meet Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. What do you
4: make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think this trip is. Unnecessary in many ways, um, and absolutely goes against his campaign promises. Perhaps a lot of your listeners know already that uh, I was the editor of Jamal Kashukji when he was writing at the Washington Post. And when he was murdered, uh, the CIA concluded that Mohammed bin Salman was uh, part of the orchestration of that operation. The questions in in Washington in regards to this trip really have to do with just what is Biden really going to get out of this? Honestly, the one who stands to benefit the most is Mohammed bin Salman, who after four years after this horrible, horrible murder is basically reappearing on the world stage and regaining legitimacy um, from the most powerful country in the world. This whole kind of question of, uh, well, this is for world security and and peace in the Middle East. Honestly, the way I look at it is this is almost exactly the rhetoric that Trump used uh, to excuse uh, Jamal's murder. And it just sends a message to journalists around the world, to American residents. Jamal Khashoggi was an American resident and to any you know enemies of Mohammed bin Salman that, you know, all he has to do is just he can commit the crime. He just needs to wait it out for two or three years and it's fine. And that's a really, really dangerous message uh, for Biden to be sending right now. And, Ole, this is being marketed
0: in some ways by the Democratic Party as, like, you know, Biden's move to lower gas prices. You know, what do you think of that framing?
3: Biden on the gas has been awful. Every response that he has to explain how they're going to address this issue has been uh, empty, worse than the last, and tends to shift the responsibility somewhere else. I know originally— was like, all right, blame Russia. Then it was uh, blame the gas stations that they're just choosing to have these prices. Biden would be better off just coming out and saying, listen, (laughs) inflation, we're here, right? We've decided we're going to involve ourselves in the Ukraine-Russia conflict in this particular way, and it's going to have these consequences. Yeah, well, I
0: want to wrap up with the question of Tiara Mack, Rhode Island state senator. She has been trending for days after posting a video on TikTok twerking while doing a handstand. And a lot of people had opinions. Some praised her. Some condemned her, called her a disgrace. Uh, Tucker Carlson aired it. Ole, what do you think of the video and who's amplifying it and why?
3: I don't think it warrants any moral outrage of any kind. Republicans do not have the moral high ground, the moral authority, Democrats either, but Republicans certainly not. Their last person has been sued for sexual assault 18 times. I don't want to hear anything, this moral high ground about twerking at all. People who are engaged in being racist and being bigots towards us will always find a reason to do it. And I don't think that black people should uh, police one another based on trying to appease the sensibilities of racists who are operating in bad faith and disingenuousness in the first place. And additionally, for Tiara Max, she's not trying to appeal to us. She's on TikTok. She's trying to appeal to a younger generation that like to see themselves represented, right? We've moved away from the world. And when I was in high school, you can't have your hair a certain way. You can't have your nails a certain way. Even when I was going to law school, there were Black professionals telling me that. You can't have your hair like this. You can't have your nails. You can't have these tattoos. Because that's what we've been taught. We've been fed this idea that it has to be this way and there's no space for us um, in the room if we're like that. That's not the truth anymore.
0: Karen, what do you think? Is this sit-down, respectability policy? Or you just don't do that. Like, why?
4: It's definitely creative. Um, And you know what? Honestly, politics is also a game of name recognition and building your brand. I mean, the fact that I didn't know who she was before the twerking video. Now I do. Now this might be a person who I would watch. Right. I'm just thinking of the, you know, candidates on the other side who like posed with guns, who run ads pretending to assassinate the other side. And people are going to be worried about twerking. Twerking didn't kill nobody, as far as I know. The one uh, politician who I think uses social media extremely well is, of course, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I think is really um, interesting and effective, and and so I'll just be curious to see how you know the TikTok generation gets involved with politics. We're we're going to see if it works or not. So, but for now, I mean, we're talking about it. She's accomplished her job, I, you know, I, I can't really be bothered about respectability politics. Max said that
0: um, this is the same person that was elected in 2020 who's going to lead with empathy, compassion, love and silliness. So maybe that was part of the silliness package, you know, the, like you were saying, let's get over ourselves. That was political commentator and attorney Olaami Alurin of The Hills Rising and Karen Atia, Our Body Politic contributor and opinions columnist at The Washington Post. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister and Tracy Caldwell are our booking producers. Emily J. Daly, Steve Lack, and Teresa Carey are our producers. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three Cs. Today's episode was produced with the help of Lauren Shilden, engineered by Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from the Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising-Simons Foundation, the BME Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.